Well, Merry Christmas. It is, uh, as Dale said, it is a pleasure to see so many of you uh, on this Christmas day as we celebrate our Lord and Savior, the coming of our King. And as we talk about kings, uh, I'm sure many of you have probably grown up playing the game King of the Hill, where you find a giant mound of dirt and uh, you try to be the last one standing at the top, right? And every time somebody comes up, what do you do? You, you grab them and you shove them back down and you keep fighting and wrestling. And uh, you, again, the goal is to just be the last one up there. Uh, I think a lot of times that's kind of our perception of leadership, right? We're, we're not necessarily building something. Instead, we're just trying to oppose anybody trying to take our power and authority. Uh, when I taught social studies uh, to the seventh graders, we, we were always coming across ancient kings and, and, and queens and, and emperors and leaders. And I would always ask the question, so if you were in charge, you could do anything you wanted, what would you do? And it wasn't surprising that so many of the answers were things like, I'd make everybody give me all my money. Or when somebody looked at me funny, I would throw them into jail. Very rarely would I have kids say, well, I would work to help all of the poor and needy that are out there. Or my goal would be to try to create peace in my kingdom, right? It was always about what can I get out of this? And I don't think that should surprise us when we understand our sinful humanity, right? That, that leadership and power becomes consumed within us to better us and take advantage of that. And history has had its awful share of leaders, but what if we had a king? What if we had a king that was so good that we actually didn't want term limits? What if we had a king that was so amazing that we actually said, please don't step out of office. We want you to continue to remain in office. What if we had a king that, that really allowed us to prosper, that we actually willingly turned over all power and authority to that king, knowing that if we just let them do whatever they wanted, our lives would all be better. Now, I, I'm sure we probably look at that and go, Adam, that's just a pipe dream. We know that there's no king would ever handle such power that way. But as we talk about Christmas and we talk about today, we know that our king has come. And that's what I want us to take a look at. What is the coming of our savior and king? What, what is that like for us? And why should we embrace truly this day of Christmas? So if you have your Bibles, you can open up to 2 Samuel chapter seven. We're gonna get there eventually. Um, but again, we've been going through the different types of Christmas. We talked about how in the Old Testament, something is pointing us to something in the New Testament to help us understand. And so we looked at Elijah, who was the voice of the, the coming Messiah. We looked at Abraham, who was the promise. And now the promise had come true. We looked at Moses with the law and that when Christ came, he came with a better law for us, a law that would now be written on our hearts. And then at the uh, Christmas Eve service, we talked about Adam as the firstborn and how ultimately that Christ was the firstborn son of God and that through Christ, he was able to buy us back 
buy us back into his heavenly kingdom and into a relationship with him. So we're going to look at the life of David today. Now, before I get to David, uh, the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 9 uh, has, a, has a very important passage. And, and Isaiah is all about what's going to happen to the people in Judah, in Israel. They have disobeyed God in the first 39 chapters. He's laying out their sins and that justice is coming and there's going to be justice for all of the nations. And he spends the last 27 chapters talking about this idea of hope and redemption. And so kind of throughout the whole book, he's constantly mixing warning and salvation to them. Well, in Isaiah chapter nine, he's speaking to this to his people and he says, there's darkness. He says, the Assyrians are, are on your doorstep, Israel, because of what you have done. You are going to be punished for this because you've become corrupt and you've become evil. But he says, look, even though destruction is coming, as Dale had shared, for us to a child is born. A son is given. The government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. From that time on and forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So Isaiah is like, look, remember, remember when you guys wanted a king? You told Samuel you wanted a king and, and you wanted to be like all of the nations around you. And, and, and you kept pleading for it. And Samuel warned you and he said, this isn't going to go well. And you're like, we want a king anyway. Well, guess what happened? All of those kings were awful. But God is now saying to you that there will come a king. There will come a king that will make all of this right for you. He will be a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting father, a prince of peace. He'll be a king of infinite wisdom. He'll be a king of infinite power. He will reign forever and he will bring in a throne of peace and prosperity for all of us. He will establish true justice and righteousness forever. And what makes this so appealing when 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 Isaiah is speaking to his people who, again, are given a warning. What makes this so exciting is when he says he will sit on the throne of David and the Israelites like, oh, David, oh, we remember that king. Oh, David was such a great king. Oh, we we know we know that one day somebody's going to come through his line. Oh, Isaiah, we can't wait for that king to get here. And so whenever David's name is invoked, there's excitement. And so who is David? Who, who is this king, David, that they are so excited about that, that when Isaiah makes this, this, this promise and this prophecy, that it, it gets their hearts a little bit excited amidst all of the chaos and, and destruction going around them? Well, again, when they wanted a king, Samuel went and, and was to anoint Saul and Saul very quickly was an awful one. And God said, we're going to get rid of him and we're going to we're going to put in another king. And, and so he says to him in second Samuel or in first Samuel, he says, how long will you mourn for Saul since I've rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. And so he goes and all of his sons pass by and he's like, don't look at the appearance, Samuel. And they get all through and they're like, none of them are the king. 
And Samuel says to Jesse, he says, where's, 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 there's got to be another child. He says, well, there's David. He's just the shepherd. He says, well, bring him here. And so he comes and the Lord says, there, there is the next king. And so we anoint him. And, and David begins to live in the house of Saul and he plays music for him and then he becomes a commander of the army and, and he goes out and he fights the enemy. And as they come back, it says he slays the tens of thousands. And then eventually he's pursued by Saul out of jealousy for David. And David continues to be a man after God's own heart and, and demonstrates great character and refuses to do anything to the Lord's anointment on Saul. And he continually lets him live until eventually Saul is dead. And then David officially takes over as king. And he goes out and he, he gets rid of the enemies of God and he reclaims Jerusalem. And he goes out and he brings the Ark of the Covenant back in. And before he, he's ready to die, he makes preparations for the temple. And he says, Solomon, I wanted to build this great temple for God, but God said it's not going to be me, but I'm going to get everything ready for you. I'm going to get all the, the resources and the gold and the materials, and you are going to be the one that's going to build a house for God. And the reason why this becomes so significant of who David is is because the promise that is made to David in 2 Samuel Chapter 7, verses 11 through 16. Allow me to read this. He says, The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. But by my love will never be taken away from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. He says, David, I, I, I'm going I'm to make a kingdom through you, through your offspring. I'm going to establish a throne, a throne that will last forever, a throne that will guide and lead my people, David. And so when they hear these words, the Israelites from Isaiah, they're, they're like, yes, there, there's another piece of the puzzle of who this guy will be. We, we just keep putting it together little by little. God gives us these pieces and we're just waiting and we're just waiting until the right man shows up. But something happens. It's very problematic. Again, the Israelites were wrong and they disobeyed God and they were taken by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And then God brings them back into the land. But then the Greeks come and they, they get conquered by Alexander the Great. And they have this little moment of freedom where, where they, they overthrow the Greeks and, and they have this independence and they're like, this is it. We're making it back. And then in 63 BC, Pompey comes for Rome and conquers Israel yet again. And they put on the throne King Herod. Now, 
to the Jews, King Herod was not a king at all. They didn't view him as Jewish. He actually was more Roman than anything. He was instilled by the Romans himself. And so now they have King Herod and they have the Emperor Caesar. They have Caesar Augustus, who's the first official Roman emperor in their history. And they're sitting there and they're thinking, where is this promise of David? Did, did God forget about us? What, what did, what's going on? They're, they're confused and they're perplexed and they've been waiting and waiting. I don't get it for a moment. It seemed like finally we were going to be back in the place that God wanted us. But now we've just been conquered again. And, and now we're just under the oppressive rule of, of the Romans and this awful King Herod. But in Isaiah 9 verse 1... It says, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. So as they're waiting for that light, something miraculous happens, right? Across the sky, a, a star shines brightly. And across in the east, some wise men see it. And they see that light and they say, there it is. And they saddle their bags and they go and they head to go see this king. And they come across King Herod and they're like, where's this king? And Herod's like a king. There, there's, there's a king. I'm the king. No, no, no. We're waiting for the actual true king. A, a king? A king that's going to come and take my power? You go. You go find him so that I may worship him along with you with the hopes that he is found so King Herod may kill him. And so when Herod speaks to his wise men, he says, who is this king that these guys have come to see? And in Matthew 2, it says this. It says, but you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And so they quote to him the words of Micah 2. That out of Bethlehem will come this king. Bethlehem? Wait, you, you, said, you said Bethlehem? That's, that's where David was from. Is, 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 this, is this again our king? And so again, there's excitement. Now we have in the Gospels of Luke chapter 2. It says, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quinarius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. And so the wise men saw that star and they came to worship the king. A star that would lead them to Bethlehem on Christmas Day where Joseph and Mary would give birth to a child. A son that would come from the line of David from the town of, of Bethlehem. The king that they're waiting for. And Mary remembers the words of the angel, Luke chapter 1. But the angel said, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son and call him Jesus he will be great and he will be called the son of the most high. The Lord will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. And, and the words of the angels who confirmed this message, 
There were shepherds living in the fields, keeping watch over the flocks. An angel of the Lord appeared, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in claws and lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. And so they all waited for this king. And here is the promise of the king. The promised king through the line of David. David, who was from Bethlehem, who led them to the stars, shined over and brought the wise men there. The angels, as they sang, that come, shepherds, come and see your king lying in a manger. One that would be wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father and prince of peace, infinite power and wisdom and infinite rule and peace was to come. And they're like, wait, it's a baby. Our king is a baby. Where are the chariots? Where where's the swords? He's not even a grown man. We've been living under the oppressive rule of the Roman authority for so long. And this baby is the one that is going to save us? See, the world of of Christ is always topsy-turvy, isn't it? We often think one way, but Christ is also often doing the opposite. Jesus wouldn't grow into a mighty warrior like David. Quite ironically, he would wash his disciples' feet like a servant would. And instead of taking life as David did, it would be Jesus who would give up his own life on the cross. How was that the king that they wanted? Well, we so often look through the spiritual world through our own eyes instead of the eyes of God, right? I mean, just take Christmas, for example. How much of society has been consumed with the presents and the gifts and the getting together for the holidays? Yet at the very same token that as we celebrate Christmas, the world is trying to remove his name from the holiday. And when we think about what peace looks like, Don't we often so think of peace in terms of peace, that there's financial peace, that I've got this bank account just exploding with cash, that I can have a big fancy car and a big old house, and and I'm at peace when I get to sit on the beach and sip my drinks with umbrellas? It isn't peace to me when, when it's zero degrees outside and I can just snuggle under my warm blankets and put on my television and watch a good movie. That's the way that we envision peace all the time. But the peace that Christ promised is much different. And more importantly, it's a peace that we needed. As I said, David would slay the tens of thousands to ensure peace. But it would be Christ who would have his own life slain on the cross to ensure ours. Because the peace that we needed to exist was not the peace of the world that is made through fragile truces between governments and nations. 
It's not a peace that's put on with a band-aid and apology letters. What we need is a peace between a severed relationship between a holy God and sinful man. But that peace only comes when true justice is dealt with. Peace only comes when it can be satisfies the wrath of God and the satisfaction that God was only taken when Christ gave his life on the cross. Now, it wouldn't be animals and peace offerings. It would need to be an equal exchange of life for a life. But our lives were never good enough because they're, 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 they're polluted by our sins. There needed to be a sacrifice of purity. And that sinless sacrifice was born to us on Christmas Day. And so when we understand the true Prince of Peace, something magical happens. When we understand the gift of eternal life, when we, we understand that we are given a life that transforms our hearts. You know, one author talked about the Prince of Peace this way. He said, when the Prince of Peace comes, it will have something more beautiful in mind. He said, the people are working together now will eventually convert their weapons into gardening tools. That human ingenuity will be redeemed and redestructive for, redirected from destructive ends to creative ends. See, life, life is not a zero-sum game when we have Christ. The goal is to not just break even in Christ. When we have a ruler like Christ to rule over us, we all prosper and we all succeed. We have a shalom type of peace, a peace that is, is, is a whole wellness of our souls and our lives. It's a king who rules with authority in mind. It's a king who delivers it, though, with gentleness and kindness. It's a king that, again, would rather give his life than to see us lose ours. So when we talk about waiting for the king, when we talk about the world being set in the right place, Christmas is that reminder to us that our king has come. And when I spoke about holiness in the last series, I mentioned the idea that it is only God who can do everything perfectly, right? And so we have a king who can only truly love to perfection, unlike you and I. We have a king who can only truly administer justice, unlike you and I. And we have a king that can only truly rule this world perfectly, unlike you and I. And when we have a king that has come, then we can have perfect peace. So as we celebrate the rest of today, as we celebrate the joy of being together with family and friends, let us again take time to give thanks, to worship. Because in order for us to know perfect peace in this world and the world to come, we have to know the perfect king. And that king is Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you. We worship you. We sing songs of gratitude and thanks. We fellowship together as that communal spirit to say, God, thank you.
Thank you for giving us this joyous gift on Christmas Day. A child that came in humility to give his life on the cross. Lord, we so often view the world one way. When God, you always have different plans. So thank you for the free and gracious gift of your son. And thank you for being king of our Lord. Amen.